Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with unprecedented action by the House Judiciary Committee, the House January 6th Committee, in the investigation into the insurrection. Today, the committee took the historic step of issuing subpoenas to their own House colleagues, including the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, along with four others, Congressman Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks. All had previously been asked to voluntarily appear before the committee. It comes as the panel steps up its efforts ahead of the public hearings that are planned for this summer. In a statement, committee chair Benny Thompson acknowledged the previous request for cooperation, saying, regrettably, the individuals receiving subpoenas today have refused and we're forced to take this step to help ensure the committee uncovers facts concerning January 6th. Now, there is precedent for issuing subpoenas to members for matters of ethics, but not for anything like what happened today. The fact is, you really don't see the sitting leader of a political party being subpoenaed by Congress. But it was seen as necessary, given Kevin McCarthy's extensive conversations with the former president on January 6th, including a phone call as the mob laid siege to the Capitol. Now, while Kevin McCarthy has so far failed to cooperate, he was very forthcoming on the day of the attack in an interview with CBS News. I've spoken to the president. I asked him to talk to the nation to tell him to stop this. I was very clear with the president when I called him. This has to stop, and he has to, he's got to go to the American public and tell them to stop this. Leader McCarthy, the president of the United States has a briefing room, steps from the Oval Office. It is, the cameras are hot 24-7, as you know. Why hasn't he walked down and said that now? I, I, I conveyed to the president what I think is best to do, and I'm hopeful the president will do it. And thanks to audio obtained by New York Times reporter Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, we know that McCarthy revealed even more days later in a call with the House Republican Conference. But let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. I asked him personally today, does he hold responsibility for what happened? Does he feel bad about what happened? He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened. Um, and he need to acknowledge that. Of course, just two weeks later, McCarthy went down to Florida to break bread with the disgraced former president and quickly changed his tune. Since then, he has been determined to railroad any legitimate investigation. As for the others, the committee wants testimony from Jim Jordan regarding his communication with Trump and participation in a meeting. Scott Perry over his involvement in installing Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general and Andy Biggs for his involvement in planning the rally that day and for seeking a potential presidential pardon for efforts to overturn the election. As for Mo Brooks, who also is named in the rally planning and who gave a speech urging supporters to start taking down names and kicking ass. The committee is also interested in his public claims that the former president urged him to rescind the election, remove Biden and reinstall Trump as president. It should come as no surprise that all five responded by questioning the legitimacy of the committee while not explicitly saying whether or not they would appear. The question now is, what's the recourse if they refuse? 
Today, Chairman Thompson expressed caution at the prospect of holding the five in contempt of Congress. What are the other steps other than yeah, contempt? Well, uh, obviously, uh, we're exploring a number of ways we could. Contempt would be one we have not talked about it. Uh, there's referrals to ethics. There are uh, some civil other things we could look at, but we've not put anything from a decision standpoint uh, before the committee. We're just taking it one step at a time. We hope everybody complies. Joining me now, Representative Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, a member of the House Judiciary Committee and an impeachment manager last year. Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And David Jolly, former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with the party. Congresswoman Dean, I'm going to start with you. You know, it used to be that we just assumed that a subpoena meant you appear and that there really wasn't any question about it. It's only in the Trump era where we learned that apparently they're optional um, for some people if they just decide not to do them, that there aren't really consequences for it. But let's talk about Kevin McCarthy for just a moment, because his views, he says his views of the committee haven't really changed, but they kind of have. Take a look. Look, my view on the committee has not changed. They're not conducting a criminal investigation. It seems as though they just want to go after their political opponents. Would you be willing to testify about your conversation with Donald Trump on January 6th if you were asked by an outside commission? Next question. So he has expressed willingness. I mean, that seems to be what that, that would be normal, right? You're supposed to comply if you get a subpoena. I can't imagine just blowing off a subpoena, but... What do you make of the fact that none of these subpoenaed members so far have expressed a willingness to come forward? Well, good to be with you and Allie and David. Uh, I have to say, Joy, um, I have been um, shocked, but I shouldn't be all along. Uh, I was there on January the 6th. It was not an ordinary day. It was not a tourist event. It was not an ordinary day. It was outside our constitutional order on a magnitude that I don't think any of us has fully comprehended yet. Uh, So nobody is above the rule of law. Nobody is uh, beyond his own oath. And yet we see with Mr. McCarthy this chronic flip-flopping. I really can't hold Mr. McCarthy to any of the words he speaks because he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. What is more impressive to me and what I think is more dire is that the rule of law still matters in this country. January 6th marked a moment, and I believe the committee, when they come forward in June with the public hearings, will reveal how precariously close we came to losing our democracy. Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Brooks, Mr. Biggs, Mr. Jordan, Mr. Perry, all have information that is relevant, that is important for the committee to have, and they should have come forward day one, voluntarily, and now they're under subpoena. A subpoena has meaning and it has the weight of the rule of law. Well, does it, Ellie? I mean, are subpoenas optional? Because, you know, it's been a novel thing that we've discovered in the last five years that apparently some people think they are. If nobody is above the law, I would like that to be proven. I would like somebody to prove that these people are not, in fact, above the law because they've been acting like they're above the law this entire time. Joy, when you say you can't imagine what it must be like to just ignore subpoenas, that's all you're saying is that you can't imagine what it'd be like to be a Republican. Because all Republicans have done to this committee is just ignore the subpoenas and nothing has happened to them. And so I say, and I'm and I'm being totally honest about this, if 
these five Republicans are going to ignore congressional subpoenas, and if the Democrats are not going to punish them severely for ignoring them, those, those subpoenas, then guess what? Congressional subpoenas do not matter for anybody anymore, right. because the only way to make it work is that if these people ignore subpoenas and get away with it, then everybody gets to ignore subpoenas and get away with it. Facebook, Twitter, Pookie from the block, ever, nobody has to follow a subpoena anymore if these five people don't have to follow, follow subpoenas. That's, that's it, just how it has to work. I mean, isn't it true that, right, could somebody that, Ellie, to stay with you for a moment, let's say they're in a robbery case or, or some other case or a bribery case or something, and they get subpoenaed, could they cite these members and say, subpoenas aren't real, they don't mean anything, I, I claim, I don't know, some sort of privilege and I'm just not going to go. Like, it, can this be precedential? So let's say that happened to me. I got subpoenaed tomorrow. I said, no, 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 no. I'm going to cite the Kevin McCarthy, Steve Bannon exception to subpoenas. I could make that argument from jail because that's how it like I would be. I'd be writing my arguments from jail being like, I don't have to supply to, to support the subpoena. Right. And what hasn't happened to these Republicans yet is that they haven't had to do their arguments from jail because the Department of Justice, the law enforcement uh, branch of our government, has not taken the steps to enforce the subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Yeah. And that is that is where we are. That's where the problem seems to be. Um, David, thank you for being here. So Kim Well, um, she's a constitutional law professor. Um, she laid out some of the options that Congress really could theoretically take. Uh, and she wrote this in The Atlantic. First, Congress could vote to ask the Justice Department to criminally prosecute someone for being in contempt of Congress. They've done that before with Mark Meadows. Nothing's happened. Secondly, it can rely on its inherent authority to have the sergeant of arms, sergeant at arms for the House detain, bring to the floor and ultimately imprison the violator. Or third, it can file a civil action in federal court, secure an order directing compliance and ask the court to issue a contempt of court citation if the order is violated. I cannot imagine, and I don't know if you can, having served with these Democrats, any Democrat doing any of those three, David, but I certainly can imagine if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker because Republicans take over the House, them using number two repeatedly after subpoenaing for nothing, just making up kangaroo court charges against Sure. Speaker Pelosi, who would then be Minority Leader Pelosi and Adam Schiff and anyone else they don't like. Maybe Congresswoman Dean here for talking uh, out of turn in their mind about their insurrection and putting them in jail. Isn't it the case yeah. that if Republicans were to get back control of the Congress, they will have a kangaroo court, make up something they want to investigate Democrats for. And they're going to use these options and they are much more likely to see prosecutions of Democrats because that won't look as partisan if this same attorney general is in place. Look, I, I would think history suggests that's true, Joy. And I would also point to Kevin McCarthy's own words that he's going to seek retribution against fellow colleagues. I also think you'll see the Republican caucus move quickly to probably try to impeach Joe Biden on, on something yet to be determined. But I think they are poised for significant retribution. And I think the important question here is, it's to recognize this kind of in two parts. The first part today was groundbreaking to have a committee issue subpoenas to sitting members of Congress, one who happens to be a party leader. That in itself is groundbreaking. The question, though, then is enforcement because they will not cooperate. I, I know Kevin McCarthy. He's probably laughing about this tonight. He's not worried about it. And so the question is, will Congress be prepared to take some level of enforcement? That's it. That will be a political question. Perhaps Ms. Dean could provide insight on. And then what is that enforcement action? 
it is a it would be a big lift on the legal. But it also depends on what the committee believes that these members know. Do they know? Do they have information related to criminal culpability? Because if so, that's groundbreaking as well. It steps out of kind of the speech and debate and traditional privileges and protections of members of the House. And I think we don't know yet what the committee knows, but we're going to find out pretty soon. And it's the reason that Kevin McCarthy and others shouldn't be laughing. They should be considering cooperating. But it's also there's also the question of what they think they know, Congresswoman Dean, but also how jealously they guard their own power. And I question that sometimes about Democrats. Like, do they understand power? Do they do they understand that they have it and that they can use it? I'm going to read you these options again. Congress could vote to ask the Justice Department to criminally prosecute for contempt of Congress. They've done that before with Mark Meadows. It has come to no effect. They could rely on their inherent authority and have the sergeant or arms just make these people comply, bring them to the floor and make them testify. Or, and, and even ultimately put them in that prison that's below the Congress that we know is there. Or they could file a civil action against them in, in court. Can you imagine Democrats, your party, doing any of those things? Uh, let me push back on one thing uh, respectfully, Representative Jolly. I don't believe that any of the five who were subpoenaed today is laughing. I think they're actually in a panic. I think that they are so fearful for their culpability uh, that that is why you're seeing this flailing and this, oh, the committee is illegitimate, uh, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, Mr. McCarthy. And if there are five sides of his mouth, he's done that as well. So I, I disagree with that characterization. These are very weak people who have information that is vital to the committee that Congress has every right to seek. Uh, and I talked to uh, Chairman Thompson on the floor today. I talked to other members of the 1-6 committee I have to tell you, they're proceeding so uh, magnificently, meticulously. Uh, I, that I don't doubt that, Congresswoman. I don't doubt that. But I specifically would like to know, are they proceeding meticulously toward doing one of these three things? Are they going to file civil? Are they going to file a civil case against these people if they don't comply? Are they going to have the sergeant in arms go get them? Or are they going to ask for contempt charges? Can you envision them doing any of those things? Because I can promise I you they're going to do them against you if they get back control. They're gonna, I hope you're prepared because they're going to go after every Democrat they can get their hands on. If they get back control, I know the answer to the question of whether they'll do it. They will. I share your urgency and, and Ellie's as well. I absolutely do. I don't know the answer. I'm not on the committee. I won't speak for the committee. But I do know that they recognize that this is unprecedented, as David just mentioned that we have subpoenaed members of our own and we have the constitutional authority and frankly responsibility to do that. Uh, and so we cannot do it without teeth. We cannot do it without enforcement. I can't speak for the committee, but this is the central question of this time in our history. Will we protect this democracy that I know the committee will show the American people came perilously close to collapsing under the weight of the January 6th insurrection incited by a president. And we need to know the exact participation of these elected leaders and the lawyers around the president. What do they know? When did they know it? When did they participate? What monies were involved? What coordination was involved? And as Mo Brooks talks about, the former failed president for more than a year is trying to get reinstated. This is madness. And we know that Mr. McCarthy talked to Mr. Trump in the lead up to the insurrection, during the insurrection, heated conversations as, as we revealed uh, in our impeachment trial. Uh, I look forward to the hearings uh, that will be public before the American people 
because you know what they will do? They'll do exactly what we did with an incredible amount of information, more than a thousand interviews or depositions, a tremendous number, as they have said to me, 99% of people have come forward. That 1%, the closest around Mr. Trump and these elected officials. We'll get the truth before the American people. Let me let me ask um, Ellie very quickly before before we run out of time, da Ellie and then David, what are the consequences for the country and for the republic if the Congress, if, if this committee is not able to get these uh, members to comply? Yeah, a coup that is not punished is just practice for the next one. And I think that it's very clear that the Republicans, if they don't get punished for what they've done, they will just keep doing it. I think that is what I think, too, David. And I think they are going to do it. Um, I think if you look at the people who are running from secretary of state down to school board all the way up, they're already putting in place the pieces that they need to do it again. Right. And this time, no one will resist. I see no one on. I can't think of any Republican who would resist. None. So, yeah. isn't it the case that we are all we, we are simply going to tell the story of how it happened the first time as we prepare to watch it succeed the second? Exactly. I don't think the coup ever stopped. And when you see Republicans say, we don't want it, the nation doesn't want to look backwards, we want to look forwards. Well, we are living through this, and we will be looking forward at the continuation of the coup. And I think there's a way to thread all of this together. I agree with Ms. Dean that these are very serious charges. My suggestion that Kevin McCarthy is laughing is not because he knows those charges are toothless, but because he is an arrogant person and an arrogant politician, which leads us to Ellie's point which is if you don't crush the arrogance of leadership and make him realize that the law applies to you just like it does the person down the street, then we are starting to lose our democracy. And that's what hangs in the balance as to whether the Congress enforces these subpoenas or not. I agree. I think that the Democrats, you know, by and large are good and decent people. Um, but I think that playing by these Marquis de Queensberry rules, when you're playing against people who are willing to cheat and steal and do whatever it takes to get power and they're willing to essentially dismantle democracy to get it, y'all ain't playing the same game. You're playing two different, very different games. And the Department of Justice, you're all playing different games than what the Republicans are playing. That's what scares me. Congresswoman Madeleine Dean, Ellie Mastal, former Congressman David Jolly, I appreciate all three of you. Up next on The Readout, one of the major consequences of Putin's aggression is a stronger NATO. Now Russia's neighbor Finland is set to join, and Russia is responding with even more threats. Here in the U.S., Putin is the model for Republicans like Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis on how to get what you want by brute force whether it's banning abortion or banning ideas that you don't agree with. Plus, the overwhelming grief after one million Americans lost their lives to COVID and how we reach that unfathomable number. The readout continues after this. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Part of Russian President Vladimir Putin's justification for invading Ukraine was to prevent it from joining NATO and strengthening the Western alliance by adding another member nation that shares a border with Russia. Now, in the wake of the invasion, the leaders of neighboring Finland say they want to join NATO. They would like NATO membership, quote, without delay. In a joint statement, the president and prime minister said NATO membership would strengthen Finland's security. As a member of NATO, Finland would strengthen the entire defense alliance. Finland's addition would double the shared border between Russia and NATO territories, and Sweden could follow suit. The Kremlin responded to Finland's decision, calling it a threat. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Russia will be forced to take retaliatory steps, both of a military, technical and other nature. This all comes as the fighting continues in Ukraine, with Russia making little progress as it suffers more setbacks and military losses on the ground. Joining me now, retired Navy Admiral James Tavridis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and author of To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible Decision, uh, which comes out later this month that I definitely will order a copy and can't wait to read it. And Admiral Tavridis, how seriously should we take Russia's, you know, barking and threats when we now know that their military, which we thought of as the second you know, biggest and largest and most formidable military in the world, is actually not all that great. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Putin and his friends in the Kremlin, their heads must be exploding tonight. Um, they have gotten everything they don't want. And, and let me tell you, Joy, I commanded Finnish troops. I've commanded Swedish troops. They fought alongside us in Afghanistan. They are professional, capable, well-financed. Those two nations together Their combined defense budgets are about a third of the budget of Russia alone. So Mm. this is a huge plus up in capability for the alliance, and I applaud it. In terms of uh, should the Finns be worried, I would say no. Putin has more than his hands full trying to uh, unwind this military disaster he's brought upon himself in Ukraine. He doesn't have the capacity militarily to do anything of significance to Finland. And on top of that, even if he would unleash a cyber attack, the Finns are very, very good at cybersecurity, Joy. And, you know, so, yeah, the, the, the threats include, you know, new nuclear deployments if Sweden and Finland join NATO. They've made all sorts of sort of threats. And let me just put up the map here just so we can just to get up. Um, I, I love a good map. Um, just so that people can get a sense of what this looks like. This is there are 30 member states currently in, in NATO. And you can see them there um, in the green. And so if you then add Finland and Sweden, those two little dark green little bits right there, voila, suddenly Russia, which, as you said, their whole excuse for invading Ukraine was that they were feeling like threatened by NATO. Well, now they're going to be even more surrounded. Do you think that when this is all said and done, Ukraine should also be added to NATO? I think uh, probably not immediately, Joy, because frankly, we're looking at a long-term scenario there with Russian occupation. I think it's going to be very difficult to fully dislodge uh, Russia from Ukraine. On the other hand, Finland and Sweden have no Uh, No incursions by Russia. Both have very long history, by the way. Um, 1939, Finland was invaded by the Soviet Union and they fought them to a standstill, much like Ukrainians are doing today. Um, That's how Finland became a neutral state, by the way. That was a promise extracted at the time by uh, Joseph Stalin. Again, the irony here is really quite remarkable. Final thought, Joy. 
um, look to the north of that map. And I'm like you. I love a good map. Maps tell stories, right? Yes. To the north of that big tranche is the Arctic. Um, Sweden, Finland, Norway all have Arctic front porch. That's a real plus for the alliance, gives us additional leverage as we face Russia across the Arctic Sea. Wow. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, so l- let's talk about the U.S. just for a moment, because Rand Paul of Kentucky, he's done this before, but he's once again holding up what feel like extremely urgent um, tranches of, of aid to Ukraine. He's holding up this $40 billion aid, aid bill. Um, it's going to pass, but he's demanding, you know, alterations to the legislation. He wants an inspector general to oversee spending, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Do you, how big of a problem is that, that you have this senator doing that, especially now? Um, it, it really is so counterproductive in the cause of democracy and freedom. And as you know well, Joy, you're an expert on Washington politics. This is the rare issue where there really is agreement across the spectrum politically, from Kevin McCarthy to Nancy Pelosi, from Mitch McConnell to, to Chuck Schumer. Everybody gets it on Ukraine, evidently, except Senator Rand Paul. Um, He needs to be taken into the cloakroom by some of his uh, fellow Republican senators. I nominate Lindsey Graham for that duty. (laughs) Lindsey Graham is a retired military officer. He gets the courage and the perseverance of the Ukrainians. He ought to take his colleague aside and say, look, this is not one to play politics with. No one else is doing so. It's really unbelievable. Um, let's talk just a moment about one of the other um, unfortunate um, sort of side effects of this uh, war that Russia is waging on Ukraine, and that has been the food shortages and the disruption to the global food supply. It's hitting particularly hard in the Middle East and um, other other parts of the world, not not so much the U.S. But um, do you think that ultimately the, the the Putinites and the Kremlin are correct in that that might actually be Putin's best weapon is to try to drag down and wear down the West? as food shortages start to hit in places like Europe um, and gas prices continue to spike and that that might actually weaken the resolve um, of the West? I think it's unlikely that that strategy is going to succeed. Um, and, and for starters, there are other major grain producers globally, including the United States, including Brazil. Um, we are going to see some rewiring, if you will, in the flow of food stocks. It's a concern, certainly. It'll manifest, by the way, largely in North Africa and the Middle East. Um, But overall, Joy, I don't think that's a winning strategy for Putin any more than his theory of the case was he would cut off oil and gas to the Europeans and they would uh, curl up into a fetal position and cry and say, oh, no, Um, that's not what happened. Germany doubled their defense budget. Um, There's not going to be anything whistling through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline but air uh, for the foreseeable future. Again, the unintended consequences for Putin are really quite remarkable. From the NATO expansion we just discussed to the war crimes that are being so visibly displayed to the hollowness of his armed forces, you know, kind of dictator 101, you want to come across as having a very powerful military scratch a line through that one at this point. Yeah, indeed. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Admiral James DeVritis, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you. And My still pleasure. Repub- Cheers. Um, coming up, the Republican political theater can be plenty entertaining until it starts targeting opponents' personal thoughts, rights, and liberties. More next. Stay with us. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. On February 16, 1999, Paul Weyrich, the right-wing strategist best known for saying this. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. That guy wrote a letter to the National Center for Public Policy Research, bemoaning the state of affairs in America and declaring, I believe that we probably have lost the culture war. He bemoaned MTV culture and the, quote, cultural Marxism that he believed had taken over America, saying the ideology of political correctness, which openly calls for the destruction of our traditional culture, has so gripped the body politic, has so gripped our institutions that it is even affecting the church. It has completely taken over the academic community. It is now pervasive in the entertainment industry, and it threatens to control literally every aspect of our lives. Weyrich said that he no longer believed that a moral majority, a term he originally coined, existed in America, or that a majority of Americans actually shared conservative views. His complaints sounded a lot like those of the right today. And he named just one corporate villain who he claimed exemplified the rot, Disney. Disney had been the subject of a boycott since 1996, led by a coalition of groups called the Christian Family Association. The boycott lasted through 2005. Disney's crime? Distributing movies such as Priest, Pulp Fiction, and Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and such shows as Disney on Disney-owned ABC TV as Ellen, NYPD Blue, Spin City, and Nothing Sacred. Fast forward to today, and the American right is not doing what a dejected Wyrick recommended, withdrawing from America's decadent culture. Instead, they've got a new tactic. Force. Their Supreme Court justices are opening the door to the state through bounties and eventually, you can count on it, a national ban forcing women to carry even their rapist children and give birth. And who knows how long before they come for your birth control pills and IUDs. Through so-called anti-woke laws, they'll, they'll just force teachers to teach the sanitized white Christian nationalist history that they prefer. They're banning the books they don't want kids to read or search for online to keep the gay stuff away. They will bar you from protesting or voting if you think wrong or vote wrong. Ron DeSantis has pioneered punishing companies, notably Disney, for daring to criticize his anti-gay law. Enter Josh Hawley saying, Ron, hold my beer. The pro-insurrection senator from Missouri has pulled the full Putin, pitching a law that would change the expiration date of Disney's copyrights as punishment for their thought crimes. 
much like how the Russian dictator snatched McDonald's intellectual property in Russia for their crime of pulling their franchises due to his war and replacing the Golden Arches with Uncle Vanya's. Seems Russia is where Republicans are now getting their ideas. Much more on how the Republican Party has become the party of Putin after the break. Das Vidanya. Because conservatives now believe in the anti-capitalistic act of punishing companies for exercising their right to free speech, Josh Hawley is attacking Disney for, quote, pandering to woke activists by speaking out against Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. Hawley is proudly boasting that his new bill would strip woke corporations like Disney of special copyright protections. Currently, Disney holds its copyrights for 95 years after lobbying Congress multiple times to extend that time frame from its original 56 years, allowing them to continue to keep the rights to the iconic character Mickey Mouse, which is currently set to expire in 2024. But Hawley's law would limit new copyright protections to 56 years and make the change retroactive, meaning Disney would lose that Mickey copyright. This law is not only unlikely to pass, but as Friend of the show, Professor Lawrence Tribe tweeted, quote, Josh Hawley either slept through his time at Yale Law School or knows his, his proposed taking of Disney's intellectual property without compensation is flagrantly unconstitutional. And just like how Ron DeSantis's effort to shame Disney by removing its special status would cost Florida taxpayers $1 billion with a B, the New Republic points out that Hawley's effort could lead to taxpayers giving a multi-billion dollar payout to Disney. For its property losses. Join me now. Charlie Seitz, editor-at-large of The Bulwark. And Charlie, I don't know whether these people are communists or socialists, because both DeSantis and Hawley's plans would actually give Disney money. You know, in DeSantis's case, he would retire their bond debt and hand that over to the Orange County taxpayer and the Osceola County taxpayers, make Floridians pay the bill instead of Disney. And in Hawley's case, basically, the government would have to pay Disney a whole bunch of money. What is this? It, it, it's is it Putinism? Are they going to turn, you know, Mickey Mouse into, I don't know, don't hate gay mouse. And then that's what their kids are going to watch. What is going to happen? Well, it's certainly not free market uh, capitalism. Uh, you know, what's interesting about all of this is there's no real public policy issue uh, involved here. It's all about retribution. It's it's all about the bonfires of revenge. You know, and, and it is interesting, you know, how many Republicans use the word uh, you know, socialist. Uh, the uh, Democratic governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, uh, has a pretty good sense of humor. He actually put out a tweet uh, saying, you know, talking about the the socialist governor of the state of Florida and saying that uh, if companies like Disney would like to come to Colorado, they are more than welcome that he would provide asylum for uh, Mickey and uh, Minnie Mouse. And and what he was doing there is he was trolling uh, Republicans like uh, like Ron DeSantis, you know, who talk about, you know, socialist policies. But but who is actually using the power of government to take away private property right now. And and the the nakedness of this is, is really striking that 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 Josh Hawley would propose punishing Disney and we could have an argument about copyright uh, you know laws and you know whether that's good or not. But that is an intellectual property. And he's making the proposal only because of things that didn't Disney has said. So it is a direct attack on free speech. And I have to say, you know, look, there's a lot of distinctions between these guys and Vladimir Putin, you know, and Viktor Orban. But this this fascination with illiberalism is spreading throughout the Republican Party, a party that used to say, hey, you know, let's protect private property. Let's protect, uh, you know, private businesses. Corporations are people. Right. And now it is turned on its head completely.
Well, I mean, the thing is, I don't know if the Jared Polis was kidding. I mean, he coined a term that's actually a real thing. Authoritarian socialism is what yeah, the old Soviet right. Union used to practice. Essentially, yeah. it meant that you as a corporation, let's say you were, we consider corporations people in the old Soviet Union. Well, you are a person who better do what the hell you're told by the government or else you'll get punished by the government. That's what authoritarian right. socialism is. It's saying that the government will constrict your speech and your speech must align right. with the government. Otherwise, you lose benefits. If your speech does align, you yeah. get perks. That is authoritarian yeah. socialism. That's what they're practicing. It's an old Soviet canard. Well, it, it is authoritarian socialism. And I'm sorry, I, I left out the, the first word there because, you know, what it's also saying to every other business that if you get crossways with us politically, we will punish Correct. you. We will take away your private property. We will pass special legislation targeting you for retribution, yep. um, which is clearly unconstitutional. But it's very much a political tactic. Um, and, you know, look, this has this you know been around for a while. Yeah. But, you know, um, you know, when, when people like Richard Nixon talked about, you know, using the power of the federal government to attack his critics, he did it in private. Now the mailed fist is out in public. Yeah. And it really is extraordinary. You know, I, I so I and I, and I the, the previous block we talked about Paul Weirich and I had a real treat today reading his 1999, you know, February 1999 letter that he wrote to fellow conservatives, really lamenting the fact that the right lost the culture wars. And that's true. The right did lose the culture wars. You know, there's much more of a liberal view of LGBTQ people. And, and, and there is a group of Americans who are traditionalists and who don't like the fact that we've undone the old gender roles, the old racial hierarchies, um, and all of the hierarchies that they felt comfortable with, right, in the 1950s. Weirich essentially said, well, he, he gave up and said, there is no more moral majority. We, we can't make we can't make the majority of Americans think the way we do. And he was really lamenting it. It seemed kind of sad. But now yeah. it seems like what they're doing on the right is they're saying we're no longer going to try to persuade the majority to want to go back to the old hierarchies that we're comfortable with. We're just going to make you go back. We're going to force the majority, 70-30. We're the 30, but we are going to force you to live in the 1950s. And if you don't like it too bad, to me, that's what is the through line, including with the abortion ruling, that they want to impose a right wing Christian, their version of Christianity view. And they know they can't persuade people to want to live that way. So they're just going to force people. Well, what's interesting about that is, you know, when Paul Ryrick said it, it was in 1999 and, uh, you know, there were other, uh, you know, Republicans who were saying, you know, OK, let's not, you know, continue to fight some of these, you know, rear guard battles. But now you do have this strain on the right. People like Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis is obviously uh, pandering to it that think that they can win the culture war, but win in the way that you are d describing, because, you know, it, it is interesting how little energy is put to persuading people Correct. as opposed to now passing legislation. Now, it's one thing to say, I wish that people would make different choices about their life, their family, uh, you know, the kinds of families that they live in. It's something very different to now pass bills that impose this vision. And it's happening very, very rapidly. I, now I can think of it as kind of a, you know, a, a last, you know, last gasp spasm, sort of like the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. Yeah. They've lost the culture war, but they're going to go down fighting and they're going to take as many prisoners and inflict as many casualties as possible. 
Yeah. And, you know, what what the Taliban discovered when they tried to impose their twisted version of Islam, which isn't even really Islam, but they're like, well, this is our version. You're all going to live there. You wound up with what Afghanistan is stuck with. You can't change people's hearts and minds by forcing them to live the way you want them to live. You're going to get resistance ultimately. And that happened in South Africa. It happens in all of these societies where a minority tries to impose, and particularly when it's a religious view. I mean, to me, what's scary is that as you've said, gone is even in the attempt at trying to persuade people that they have a better view or that they have a better way of making right. the world better. They actually don't care if we think that their way is better. They're just going to make us live the way they want us to live. And they're going to get resistance. I don't think I don't know that they understand that the majority has already been persuaded that we like a more liberal society. We like people being not stuck yeah. in the closet. We like the idea that little kids can see different characters, different races, you know, can be superheroes. Those things, people like them. That's why corporations do them. That's why corporations go along with it. Yes. Well, this, that's what's going to be interesting. I want to just pick up on your point about the corporations. You know, the, the, the fight with Disney is just a Think of that as an hors d'oeuvre for what's going to happen, <laughs> that that if, in fact, you do have people like uh, Senator Hawley and, uh, and and DeSantis. And look, if, if Donald Trump comes and Rick back, Scott. Uh, you think that that, Rick Scott, yes, too. you don't think that, he said, it. yeah, oh, Rick Scott will and, you know, uh, Greg Abbott in in Texas. Um, and if Donald Trump comes back, you know that that will be, you know, central to their 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 agenda. But I mean, you know, so now this is going to be a big test for American business and corporations. Um, are they going to be intimidated? Will they fall silent? Yeah. Because that is really part of the goal is to make sure that they don't engage in any of these cultural issues, that they don't stand up for gay rights, that they don't stand up for any of these things, don't take these positions. Um, but I do think that, you know, these companies, they have employees, they have shareholders, and they have customers. Yep. And um, right. they're going to be caught between this political pressure and this culture that you're describing. And it's going to be very interesting uh, to see how this plays out, because normally Republicans have been reluctant to take on the entire business community. Yeah. And I think that war is coming, though. Yeah, indeed. And when you pander to the far right, the extremes, you get what they're getting in Pennsylvania, which is all the candidates all running against each other. Like, oh, they're all bad. But too bad. That's you're stuck with uh, Charlie Sykes. Thank you, man. Really appreciate you coming up next. President Biden joins families, friends and colleagues who lost someone they love in mourning and remembering one million American lives lost to COVID. We'll be right back. Today, President Joe Biden marked the loss of one million Americans to COVID-19. We mark a tragic milestone here in the United States. One million COVID deaths. One million empty chairs around the family dinner table. Each irreplaceable, irreplaceable losses. Each leaving behind a family, a community, forever changed because of this pandemic. My heart goes out to all those who are struggling. The remarks came during the president's second second global COVID summit, where he urged a re-energized international fight against the virus, even as Republicans here at home continue to block relief aid. Administration officials warned that the U.S. could see 100 million coronavirus infections this fall and winter, which is all to say the pandemic isn't over. But we can't pass that one million mark without talking about the lies from the previous administration that got us here. Lie after lie, death after death. They boosted fake miracle drugs, spread lies that could kill. And it didn't have to be this way. They knew it spread in the air. Trump himself, who puffed at his chest, refusing to wear a mask, told Bob Woodward he knew COVID-19 was deadly stuff and airborne, but he wanted to play it down. 
Meatpacking and other industries lied, too, to make people come to work when it wasn't safe. Under the chaos, the cacophony of COVID politics and anti-vax hysteria, people lay sick, isolated from loved ones who could only share their last words with the dying via iPad. So many died, alone in those beds, in isolation. People buried their parents and grandparents and friends. Some even buried their children. It is an unprecedented American tragedy, an unthinkable one, really. The brain struggles to compute the magnitude of that number, one million souls. Imagine the entire population of Austin, Texas, or Rhode Island, gone in just over two years. These Americans did not pass quietly. Their loved ones did not grieve quietly. I remember screaming, one mother told The Atlantic, as she watched her 13-year-old son die from her phone. But this tidal wave of grief has been denied by a Republican-backed mission to politicize this virus. And that denial continues, even now. And so we end tonight by taking a moment to honor these one million lives lost, people who mattered to their loved ones and to their country, a tragic toll we cannot repeat and should never, ever forget. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.